Thank you, Lauren, and um, thank you, Susan. Uh, truly humbled by your words. Uh, for those of you who are in the room, it seems like we have a lot of summer interns, and I hope that you'll take the opportunity to introduce yourself to Susan, to some of the other um, staff uh, who are in here who work on these issues, um, like Erica and others. Uh, there, there's a lot of really bright and passionate people who work on the Hill who um, made criminal justice reform happened last year and it wouldn't be for without them uh, and they also have um, such integrity and faith and uh, so I think these forums and faith and law are such a great opportunity for you to to interact with some of your colleagues who care deeply um, about these issues um, as Susan mentioned I'm uh, from prison fellowship um, want to talk just first a little bit about uh, what we do and who we are uh, we're most known for our work to minister to people in prison uh, we're the largest Christian nonprofit serving people in prison. And then we also do work caring for families of prisoners. And we have a program called Angel Tree. Has anyone heard of that? Yeah? Okay. Um, so that was actually a program I was familiar with uh, growing up at my church. We had the Angel Tree program. Uh, basically, churches can sign up uh, to provide Christmas presents um, on behalf of incarcerated parents. And the mom or dad uh, in prison actually signs up their child, selects what kind of um, gift they think their child would like, and um, writes them a note. And, and then uh, the family from church will deliver that to that uh, child of an incarcerated parent um, and let them know that their parent's thinking of them. Um, so we serve about 300,000 children every year through that program, um, which always amazes me that we're able to um, have have that big of an impact, but also saddens me that there's that many children who have an incarcerated parent. Uh, we also have a program called the Wardens Exchange that equips uh, leaders and wardens to make prisons more rehabilitative. Um, and then finally, the work that we're going to be talking about, about today is our, our work on advocacy. Uh, we, we try and promote a more restorative criminal justice system. Uh, in your folders, there's uh, a, a pamphlet about prison fellowship if you're interested in getting a little bit more information about our programs. And, and then there's our founders. So I, there's a lot of young people in here. Um, and so be honest. Show of hands how many people know who Chuck Colson is. Okay. Um, so pretty good showing. Uh, a lot of times when I go to uh, st staff meetings, depending on the age, um, I get a little bit of a glaze. Uh, but Chuck Colson, uh, featured here, was actually a special counsel to President Nixon. And he was known as the hatchet man. Uh, he... Uh, was quite sneaky and, 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 and kind of known to be devious, if you will, and, and ruthless. Uh, and he actually got involved in the Watergate scandal. Uh, and it was really through that process that he had a come-to-Jesus moment, if you will, uh, and uh, ended up you know, confessing and going to prison uh, for, for his uh, involvement in Watergate and spent uh, seven months there. And, and that had a, an impact on him uh, where God just said, I sent you here for a reason, and I'm going to use this in your life, uh, and I'm going to work through you. And so when he got out of prison, uh, he founded Prison Fellowship in the late 70s. We've been in existence for over 40 years. Um, we also have an international uh, division that's in um, dozens of countries around the world uh, doing ministry and bringing hope inside the walls. Um, Mr. Colson passed away in 2012, uh, but he visited uh, hundreds and hundreds of prisons in, in America and around the world, um, and he also became a pretty prolific uh, author on Christian worldview. Uh, some of you may also follow our sister organization, uh, the, the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and their, their Breakpoint radio station. So we've been in existence for 40 years. Um, our impact, uh, we, we have about 24,000 uh, people in our 
courses, uh, connections classes every month um, in prisons across the America. Uh, we have our most intensive program that's called the Academy, which Susan referenced. She visited our Academy program in St. Bride's, Virginia um, facility. We have 91 academies in over 27 states. Um, uh, that's what we'll reach by the end of this month. Uh, and that program lasts about 12 months. Uh, people spend about 500 hours uh, studying the curriculum that we have. It's taught from a Christian worldview, um, but we're, we're really getting deep on issues like um, addiction and finances, parenting, relationships, boundaries, the whole gamut, and really trying to address why someone came to prison to start with um, and how they can begin to make amends uh, and transform their life um, before release or if they're not going to be released to be someone who's a transformative leader inside the prison. We have um, 11,000 ministry volunteers that make this possible um, and, and also serve in our Angel Tree program. And then we have about 40,000 people who um, are our advocates. Um, there's a lot of crossover of those volunteers in prison as well as our uh, folks who, who reach out to your offices and let, let you know that they care about criminal justice reform. And so I want to talk um, about criminal justice today. And um, these first couple of slides are going to focus more on the national picture and um, the pace at which we have grown. Um, some of you may know the often cited statistic that the uh, United States is the, leads rule, is the, the world's leading incarcerator. Um, and, and when I talk about the national criminal justice picture, what we're really talking about is a combination of local and state and federal systems um, all combined. So if we look at that, we've got 10.5 million arrests made in 2016. 2.2 million people, uh, Americans, are incarcerated, including roughly 745,000 in jails, um, and jails being places where we hold people before um, they're tried or for people who have a sentence of less than a year, prisons being places where we send people once they're convicted um, and have a sentence of over a year. And then we have 4.5 million um, on probation or parole, so a lot of people in our community who are being supervised um, even more so than in prison. And of course, these numbers in America have a ripple effect. We know that about one in 28 children um, have a parent in prison. That ratio goes down to one in nine when we're talking about African-American children. There's an estimated 70 million US adults that have a criminal record, and that's about one in three Americans. There's also a fiscal cost. Uh, on average, if we look across the states and federal system, $33,000 to incarcerate one person. $80 billion spent annually on state and federal corrections, and we lose an estimated $87 billion in economic output on account of preventing people with a criminal record from fully joining the workforce. Um, did anyone see the news yesterday of the White House event on second chance hiring? Kim Kardashian was there. That's the more important piece, right? Um, <laughs> um, so I got to attend yesterday, and we were just really focusing in on this issue of, of second chance hiring and making sure employers are really embracing the idea of giving someone a second chance post-release, someone's paid their debt, uh, to have a job and give back to the community. Um, and that would do our economy well if we, did, if we, if we moved in more in that direction. And I'm encouraged to see so many more and more employers um, heading that way. Okay, so now let's talk a little bit about the specifics of the federal system, particularly for those uh, of you who are here um, uh, as interns. Um, this may be less um, familiar. I think we hear those kind of big national numbers a lot, um, but the federal system is actually unique in a number of ways. 
Um, the prison population of the federal system is larger than any state system. Um, this chart is kind of showing changes from 1980 to 2013, so you can really see the growth. Um, the prison population in 1980, uh, around 24,000, skyrockets to 216,000 in 2013. We hit a peak um, a couple years later, up to over 220,000 people um, in the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Uh, we also um, kind of had a, a prison building spree during those decades, um, from 43 prisons in 1980 to 119 prisons. And we've been spending more on, on, on the Bureau of Prisons um, in terms of the total Department of Justice budget. So in 1980, we spent about 14% of the DOJ's budget on the Bureau of Prisons. By 2013, uh, it was 23%. And that's, of course, uh, you know, keeping out funds or taking away from funds that could be spent on law enforcement, uh, drug treatment programs, and other things to help reduce crime. Uh, and then uh, another unique thing about the federal system, or has become more of a unique thing, in 1980, we had about 25% of the BOP population uh, that was uh, people with drug offenses. But by 2013, we were up to 51%. Um, and so that's about where it, uh, where it is now. About 50% are, are those with uh, drug offenses. Uh, and then average time served. We've been giving people harsher sentences. I'll show you another graph that gets into that. Um, but we went from an average of uh, 16 months or so um, in 1980 sentence to an average of 40 months um, per person. So um, some of the reasons that we've had this, this growth include uh, harsher and lengthier sentences. Uh, we had the abolishment of parole at the federal level. Um, that was similar to a, a wave of, of kind of popular reforms at the state level as well. Uh, and then we really started to limit judicial discretion as well. Um, however, um, I do want to point out for those of you who are really in the weeds and, and judiciary staff and so forth um, uh, that uh, there have been reforms since, of course, 2013, um, both by the previous administration, this administration, Congress, and the United States Sentencing Commission um, that have led to some declines in this population. So we're actually now, um, as of today, down um, to around 180,000 people in the Bureau of Prisons, um, so below that 200,000 number. Um, we've decreased to 109 prisons, um, so close closed several federal facilities or dozens, and the average sentence is down from 40 months to 30 months uh, as of 2016. Um, so there have been some positive changes, and we'll talk a little bit more um, about what those, have, uh, uh, what those specific laws have been. And another piece I wanted to show, just a um, glimpse of kind of the state versus federal system and some of the unique things that you all face here at the federal level. Um, you can see that the state systems um, are really dominated by um, people with more violent offenses, um, whereas the federal system, as we were talking about, dominated more by people with drug offenses as the main um, in the gray are the federal offenses and sort of the breakout of what type. Um, so federal system, um, a lot of uh, people with drug offenses. I do want to point out um, most of these people uh, who are the vast majority is really only a handful of people in the federal system for drug offenses that are possession only. Um, and the vast majority of them have been involved in dealing of some kind. 
Um, but I think a really important factor that I try to talk to uh, every staffer I meet with about is there's a whole spectrum of, of sort of the culpability of someone who is um, involved in drug dealing. So you can have someone who um, is a courier um, or the mules kind of taking um, the drugs from point A to point B. Um, maybe they're the girlfriend of a, um, a larger drug dealer and don't even know what's in the bag um, and they're transporting it all the way up to someone who's a major drug kingpin. Um, and so there's this whole spectrum of culpability and involvement. And um, I think what's happened at the federal level um, over these last several decades is we've sort of ratcheted up everything um, and the harshness of all types of drug offenses without having um, enough nuance, um, particularly for those at the low or, or mid levels um, of drug offenses. And we can see here that um, across all types of offenses, whether it's violent, property, drug, um, immigration, there's been an increase in sentence length um, from 1988 to 2012. Uh, and this is, this is true or has been true for um, around these same years. Um, we'll get a little bit into the, the changes that have happened at the state level, um, but this was a trend across the country. We're kind of ratcheting up how much time we give everybody. Um, and so next, I, I want to talk, I'm really excited to be here at Faith and Law and have people who have a Christian worldview and are trying to think about this issue. Um, and so I want to dive in just a little bit into what does the gospel have to say about justice? Um, we know that the God of the Bible is a just God. We know that justice flows from his very character. We know that God is relational. He's restorative. Uh, at Prison Fellowship, we talk a lot about how um, a crime is not just committed against the state. Uh, it's also, it's about broken relationships, right? The harm caused to the victim and the community. And then in Genesis 1.27, we read that God created mankind in his own image. In his image, God created them. This concept of Imago Dei is something we should anchor ourselves in as we try to pursue justice. And so if we believe that every human being is a person made in God's own image, a life worthy of respect and care, that applies to victims of crime, and it also applies to people accused and responsible for crime. And so what if this concept of human dignity was actually reflected throughout our American justice system? What if contrary to the default punishment we have in America, the most common form of accountability that we had was the most common form we found in the Old Testament, restitution? How might that help make victims whole? How might our bail system or access to defense counsel look differently if we truly took out our duty to take care of the cause of the poor and the vulnerable? How would prison conditions and culture be different if each of us embraced Hebrews 13.3 to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering? How might returning neighbors, uh, the phrase I like to use for those who have already paid their debt to society and are home, be treated differently if we recognize that God gave us all the ultimate second chance. And what if we truly made it a priority to celebrate redemption, not just in word, but in deed, and dare I say, policy. I believe that the gospel calls us to share the good news, how every person can be justified through Christ, including those behind bars. 
And that's contributed to prison ministry being a staple in many American churches. Um, This is actually from a poll Prison Fellowship partnered with Barna uh, to do um, to look at both American and Christian uh, perspectives in particular about various justice issues. And we we post this statement in the poll, and this is from 2017. Because of my values, I believe caring for prisoners is important. Less than a quarter of American adults strongly agreed, but that jumps to 35% among practicing Christians. And you can see um, another 52% agree. Uh, And that jumps all the way to 44% strongly agreeing among those who are evangelical. Uh, So this is a a concept that's deeply tied um, to our belief in redemption. And so we we know that we we need to care for people in prison directly. We know that we need to bring... um, the truth of the gospel there. But what if we applied that same zealous energy to bringing the Bible's values to bear in the public square? You know, I think that's something people in our pews, um, myself, we have a harder time wrapping our minds around that, bringing justice not just for people and souls, but to systems. We have a harder time mobilizing around that. And you'll actually see that in this next polling question. We pose the statement, My values compel me to advocate in support of criminal justice reforms when I perceive there are unjust laws or policies. And so compared to where you saw that significant difference across Christians and particularly evangelicals, um, when we asked about caring for people in prison, you don't quite see much difference um, of U.S. adults generally compared to practicing Christians. So we might be tempted to think we aren't doing too bad. We've still got a majority of people who think that they should do this. Um, But we are supposed to be set apart as believers, are we not? And so what if the church sees this opportunity to not just bring the gospel to broken people, but to seek the gospel lived out in our broken world? Does not the same gospel that calls us to bring the good news to every man also call, uh, call us to seek justice for every man? And so at Prison Fellowship, that's what our advocacy and public policy team is in the business of doing. We want to both awaken the church to uh, the fact that this is part of our, of our calling as believers and, and biblical. Um, and then we want to equip them uh, to advocate for a criminal justice system that recognizes and advances the dignity and value of human life, that prioritizes victim participation in the system, that cultivates community engagement. Uh, and really, when we're looking at some of the key policies we support, um, we, we focus in on proportional punishment, um, enhancing a pr- uh, constructive prison culture, and providing closure um, for those responsible for crime. We want when uh, you have finished your sentence for your debt truly to have been paid, uh, not to have all these continuing collateral consequences, an estimated 44,000 across the country um, that prevent you from getting a job, uh, having an education, um, getting access to housing, and all sorts of other things needed uh, for, for a productive life. And so maybe there are a few skeptics in the room. I, I would kind of doubt you take time from your lunch break if we've got lots of skeptics, but maybe there are some here. And maybe you've got some constituents who are skeptics about crime. So um, I want to talk a little bit about the crime rate, because maybe some of your constituents uh, might say to this presentation, well, you know, that seems very aspirational, but um, this won't keep us safe, Heather. Uh, we lock up a lot of people for a reason. And if you watch the nightly news, I mean, it's evident. There's got to be rising crime, right? Um, and so... Even if that's not your perception, I, I do think it's the perception of a lot of Americans. Um, and, and even though that is the sense you get from watching the nightly news, it's not actually what the data show. 
we, we can see here, this is a chart um, showing the national crime rate. The crime rate has decreased significantly from 1983 to 2013. Um, yet during that same time period, um, the rate at which we incarcerate people increased by 165%. Um, and, and so if you're, you're a super skeptic, you might say, well, <laughs> that, that's probably proof that all this incarceration worked <laughs> and is needed, right? The, the incarceration went up, crime came down. Um, well, researchers, even those who have been really big proponents of incarceration, um, have, have suggested that only about 25% of the decrease in violent crime and even less in property crime uh, is because of incarceration. There's a whole bunch of other factors that contribute to this, um, a growing economy, drug market changes, um, the aging um, kind of baby boomer population, strategic policing tactics, and as well as the community responses to crime that have changed over the last several decades. Um, so we have this sort of diminishing returns when it comes to over-incarceration. Um, and we've actually seen the states sort of lead the way in saying, this isn't working, and also, I don't know if this is even right um, to do. And so let's, let's try and take a more restorative, a more proportional approach. And this chart actually shows um, the uh, top 20 states with the highest reduction in prison population. Um, over time, and you can see all but one also had significant declines in crime. Um, so I believe the, the, the um, brighter blue line shows the decline that they had in their prison population, and the darker blue line shows the crime rate. Um, and so we had 35 states actually cut crime rates, this is just the top 20, um, and prison rates simultaneously um, in the past um, decade or so. Uh, and so it can be done. Texas is one of the ones listed there that I like to talk about. They actually um, were kind of at this breaking point where they uh, said that, um, you know, we're either, the, the, because of our policies, we're expecting to have more and more people coming to prison unless we either change the laws um, or we're going to have to just build more prisons. And so that's the point when they decided we're going to really evaluate what we're doing. We're going to try and take a more proportional and restorative, smarter approach. Um, and they've had a reduction in their crime rate, and they've also closed eight prisons. Um, so pretty remarkable. And um, Brooke Rollins from the Texas Public Policy Institute now um, ha uh, works for the administration and has been um, a leading force behind the First Step Act. Um, and, and that's in part because of what she saw um, be successful in Texas. And so the federal and state systems, because all these changes were happening at the federal level and um, a little bit faster, I would say, to, to pass something at the state level than the federal, um, as some of you may know, um, we, we, we saw kind of the states having this decline in prison populations overall, but the federal system continuing to grow um, up until, I think this goes through 2013. And so uh, then, you know, I think people were really watching the states, and we did have um, some uh, encouraging, more restorative approaches 